head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. My name is Carl. It's nice to see some of you late people uh, come in one hour later. Waking up in the middle. Uh, wait, oh my goodness, my phone says it's an hour earlier than my body says it is. Uh, but we are very thankful that each one of you have uh, joined us this morning. We are going to be continuing our series on the church. So if you brought your Bible, open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be jumping all over the scriptures, but we're going to be starting in there. We are continuing our series on the church that I've entitled A Family of Strangers both strangers to the world and in many cases we're strangers to one another because the only thing in many cases that we have to be united in is Christ himself. We look differently, we talk differently, we live in different types of homes and the only thing for many of us that genuinely unites us is our common faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, but today, we're going to be studying the, the nature of the church as a growing family of strangers. A growing family of strangers. So let me throw out a question before we dig deep into the, the text and jump all around the Bible to understand this thing called growth. Uh, but let me just ask a question. When you begin thinking about church growth, what do you think of? What comes to mind when I say that the church is growing? Instinctively, most of you will think, well, that means the numbers in your attendance gathering is increasing, right? Or if I say the church is growing, potentially you might think, well, that means the amount of money that is being given to the church is increasing, so our budget is increasing, in many circles, the, when we talk about church growth, the, the thing that people think of first, first and second, is both budgets and bottoms. Budgets increasing for, for their annual budget and, in the, and increasing in their givings, and bottoms in the pews increasing at their gatherings. It is in most cases what people think of when they think about church growth. And there's many reasons for this. In the 1970s and 1980s, uh, church thinkers intentionally uh, emplaced this type of thinking in many churches. Starting in the 70s, there were a large amount of resources being uh, pushed out towards church leaders that would attempt to increase the size of congregations numerically and increase the budgets of congregations in the United States. This was dubbed as even the church growth movement and was built on certain, a certain philosophy of reaching people to increase their attendance. The Association for Religious Data Archives describes the church, movement, church growth movement in this way. In the 70s and the 80s, American evangelicals coupled their love for evangelism and missions with a new pragmatism that was steeped in marketing strategies. The result was a new emphasis on consumer-oriented church growth. So in the 70s and 80s, the church said, we got to grow. We got to increase the size of our churches. We got to increase the budgets of our churches. And if we're going to do this, we need to start thinking like businessmen. 
We need to start thinking of people like consumers that have religious needs, and we need to provide religious goods and services to market to them correctly so that they might come and attend the religious gatherings. Let me just start by saying this is drastically different than how Jesus talks about church growth. Before we even talk about external growth, growing in numbers and increasing the number of people to gather to worship Jesus, before we even talk uh, about how to increase our budget and increase our giving that people give to the church, before we even do any of that, we must understand God's vision of church growth from the scriptures. The growth of the church doesn't begin with increasing bottoms in the pew and doesn't begin with attempting to increase budgets to the bottom line. The growth of the church begins with two internal areas before it moves externally. Have you ever wondered, why did it take the church so long to grow externally after the resurrection? So Jesus dies on the cross, he raises from the dead, he reveals himself to uh, many people throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and at the time after he ascends into heaven, there's about 150, or 120 disciples who are gathering. And they stayed as 120 for 50 days. They gathered together, they prayed, they sought the Lord, but Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1 that they were to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Why did it take 50 days between the ascension or the the resurrection of Jesus and the, the pouring out of the Spirit in Pentecost? Well, might I submit to you that God was using that time to solidify in their hearts, in the 120 disciples' hearts, the two primary internal aspects that he wanted to grow in them before he moved it outwardly and grew in large numbers and the church grew numerically. Brothers and sisters, during those 50 days, the Holy Spirit was not asleep. He was not just uh, way, he was not just in heaven, just lying down, taking a nap. Guys, just give me like 50 more days and then I'll do my work. The Holy Spirit was not lazy saying, man, I'm tired. I just rose Jesus from the dead. That's a lot of heavy lifting. Give me some time to rest and relax, and then I'll pour myself out. And then Jesus will send me to pour myself out upon the church, and then it will grow externally. He was not asleep. The time I believe he was using to solidify the believers internally before he would grow them externally. And let me submit this to you, that there are two primary ways in which the church grows internally far before it can grow externally. And it is is these, these ways. The church grows through purity and unity. The church grows through purity and unity. We, as God's people, we should embrace this as God's vision for church growth. Purity and unity, or uh, what I want to call uh, holiness and togetherness. God desires to grow in his people these two primary things internally before he moves externally to grow them outside of the church, to bring others into 
the church. And yes, these things can happen simultaneously, but far too often when we talk about church growth, we only talk externally about reaching people who are far from Christ. And before we even get there, I believe God wants us to focus on a a primary priority that he has for the church. Today, we're going to see these two ways that the church grows internally. So this past week, uh, uh, the pastors and I we, we, and some of the lay leaders at the church, we attended a, a district conference for our association of churches in Northern California. And at these conferences, we interact with a number of other lay leaders, a number of other pastors. And uh, guess what? One of the first questions that other pastors ask, how big is your church? And frequently, we get into these, con- these conversations, and, and other pastors will share, well, we were about 350 before COVID, then COVID gutted us, and now we're under 200, and it's been difficult. But primarily, even church leaders these days, we, we talk in these particular categories when it comes to these things. But notice how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 w- describes growth. And what Jesus is looking for in the growth of his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, many of you are familiar with the passage. It's instructions that uh, Paul gives to Christian husbands and Christian wives. And the metaphor that he uses for instruction to husbands and wives is the relationship that Christ has with his church. So we get insights into what the priority should be that Christ has for his church. Starting in verse 27, of chapter 5, he, uh, Paul says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. That's purity, that's holiness, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the church and the growth of the church and what he desires for the church is for them primarily to grow in holiness, primarily to grow in the washing of the water with the word, primarily for them to grow in their their lack of stains and their repentance of sin and their growth in understanding of who their Lord Jesus Christ is so that they might be presented to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish. That she, the church, might be holy and pure. The growth that Jesus cares about most in his church is her growth in her holiness. He wants to cleanse her from her sinful stains, to love her as his own body, to bring her to himself as a blameless bride. Why is it? That when we talk about church growth, the first thing we talk about, the the first thing we don't talk about isn't holy. How did that? Andrea, you need to be my editor on the fly here. (laughs) How many negatives was I using in that sentence? Why isn't holiness the first thing that we talk about when we talk about church growth? Why do we talk about attendance and budget and a powerful sermon or an engaging worship experience when we, talk about, when we talk about church growth? Why do we not first talk about our growth in holiness? 
That's what Jesus is most concerned with you and with me and with our gatherings together. Purity of his bride is paramount. God desires holiness in his church because God himself is holy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Holiness is a non-negotiable for the church. Holiness internally allows for the outward glory of God to be revealed in his church. So if a church is not set apart and holy unto the Lord, all that they do externally can be nothing more than filthy rags if they are not devoted to their Lord. When a church is holy, they, they emanate all they emanate the glory of God in all that they do. When a church is holy, when it just simply means they're set apart for the work of God, they're entirely devoted to Him. They're, they're washed by the water of the Word through the gospel. When they're set apart for God and God's work, their worship, their preaching, their service, their fellowship, their teaching, their mission, and their gatherings all display the glory of God outwardly if inwardly they are holy. But if inwardly they are full of hypocrisy and dead man's bones, all that they do outwardly is meaningless. This means before we can even discuss things like mission and vision and outreach, we need to have real conversations about where our hearts are before Jesus. Holiness is the church's nature as those who have been called out from the world to devote themselves fully to God. And if a church is genuinely holy, that means a church should be genuinely united to God and to one another. A holy church is a united church. In fact, this is what Jesus precisely prays for. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he says this about his disciples. He says, sanctify them. God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart as holy through your word because your word is truth. Now, what's the link between holiness and unity? Jesus explains it in his prayer in John chapter 17 in verses 21 and 22. Don't get confused by almost the circular reasoning that he gives in this passage, but see Jesus' heart as he is praying for his disciples and his future disciples, which will make up his church. Verses 20 through 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and that's me. That's those who have responded to the gospel and are incorporated into the body of Christ and the church, that they, may, that they may all be one, united, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Our holiness, our set-apartness for God and for God's glory, believing in the word of Jesus through the gospel and being united into his church is something that is deeply and profoundly in the heart of God. Just as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are, are one God in three persons, we as his church are brought into fellowship with the Trinity through our faith in him and our unity with one another, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And notice what Jesus is praying for here. First, he's praying for unity. 
Sanctify them in your truth. But as you are sanctifying them in your truth, bring them into your gathering of people so that they may be one. They may have unity of mind and heart and spirit and mission and vision and values, that they may be united under my authority in the the Word so that we can be in Christ and united to God together. Unity is at the very heart of God. That they may all be one, even as they're from different ages and demographics and geographical locations and they speak different languages and they have all sorts of differences about their externals in their hearts before the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it is expressed in worship and mission and vision, they are one. This is Jesus' prayer for his church. Why does he pray this? Why does he pray for unity within the church? He gives the reason in the prayer so that the very mission of Jesus is at stake in the unity of the church. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. If they can't get along with one another, if they can't be united to one another in their faith, in me, the world is never going to believe that they're from me and that I'm from the Father. The very mission of the gospel is at stake in your relationships to one another in the church. The apologetic that the church has to the world, how they know that Jesus was sent from the Father, how they know whether Jesus has risen from the dead and the Spirit has been poured out, how they will know is by the way that you and I are united to one another by faith as it is expressing itself through love. You remember John chapter 13 when Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by how big your budgets are. They will know that that you are my disciples by how many bottoms are in your gatherings. No, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Love is just the expression of unity. That the world may believe that you have sent me. When the enemy wants to attack any institution, any country, any household, when there's an enemy that says, okay, I'm I'm going to attack this thing. I'm going to either rob it, I'm going to take it over, I'm going to overpower it. Does the enemy analyze what they are looking at and say, I'm going to go for the strongest part of their defenses? Or does the enemy look for a vulnerability? Does the enemy look for a weakness? When a hacker is trying to get into a computer system, it A hacker doesn't look at all of the places in the system that have strong defenses. The the hacker looks for a vulnerability. When a robber wants to enter into a house, it doesn't just go up to the door that is deadbolted and just try pushing on it. It has specific tools to get into windows and the, the, the places that the house is vulnerable. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying in the church, in the people who have been called out to follow him, our strength is from him, from our holiness in him, our set apart nature to be completely and entirely devoted to him. 
and in how that expresses itself in unity with one another. Our holiness, we must look to Him as our shield, as our defender, as our Lord, as our Savior. And we must look to Him as the source of our unity. Which means we have two primary vulnerabilities within the church to the enemy's attacks. What are they? They are impurity and division. Impurity is just simply any part of the church that is not entirely devoted to Jesus. Any part of the church that does not reflect this part, this part, this ministry, this aspect, this area of our church is entirely 100% for the glory of God. It's a very broad category and any, almost anything that does not reflect the glory of God through our devotion to Jesus Christ can fall under this category. Sexual immorality, sensuality, sorcery, witchcraft, idolatry, drunkenness, all of these things can be stains to our, our sold-out nature to the devotion of Jesus because of his grace to us. Anything that the world can look at the church and say, those hypocrites, see? They're not devoted to Jesus. They're all in it for the money. Those hypocrites, they're not in it for Jesus. They're in it for political clout. <laughs> Those hypocrites, they're not, they're not in it for Jesus. They're in it for their family reputation and for their, the, the fame of their own name. They're for the banner of themselves. Brothers and sisters, for us as a church, I'm just going to name it. I think our biggest temptation as a church to impurity is apathy. Just going about our routine, doing our thing, maybe the same way we've always done it, maybe changed it, but just saying, no, my heart's not in it, but I'm going to attend, I'm going to do something. When the world sees that, they're like, why in the world would I try to be united to those people? There's nothing there for me. And our apathy manifests itself if, if and when we have divisions. Divisions are, are just factions within the church that reveal to the world, these people aren't united to Christ and they're not united to one another. Division is most likely at root in division is enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rage, rivalries and good old-fashioned selfishness. Most of us are apathetic just because we're selfish. We don't want to change, so we don't want to move out of our comfort zones, and so we'll just retreat back into, oh, I don't care what happens. Division in the body of Christ is, is so sad because it's basically the right arm declaring war on the left arm. How dare that left arm be more gifted and talented than me? How dare, why does the right arm always get to pitch the ball and the left arm only gets to catch it? Or it's no fair that the left arm always catches the ball and, and me as the right arm, I, I always have to throw it. I do all of the work. And when the world sees a divided church, they scratch their head and they say, what in the world is going on there? Brothers and sisters, the 
The biggest temptation that we have towards division in our church, it's nothing doctrinal or theological or nothing deep-seated hypocrisy or any, uh, any deep-seated um, false teaching or cult of personality. Like our biggest temptation towards division right now is just generational. It's not escaped on you that I'm a lot younger than many of you. It's not escaped on me that I have a really hard time communicating in such a way that you're like, okay, that makes sense. I'm, I'm with you. There's a barrier. There's a generational barrier for many of us, and, and not just me, but many of us in the, in the church. And it's so easy and so tempting from the evil one to just retreat into generational enclaves. But brothers and sisters, we're a family. Families are filled with great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's a beautiful thing with an entire family can come together, united together on one mission, one vision, doing the hard work to communicate between grandparents and grandchildren, between great-grandchildren and their boomer parents or grandparents. Brothers and sisters, the best way for us to witness to this unbelieving world and this unbelieving community is for a stranger to Christ to walk into our gathering and for them to see loving grandparents loving their spiritual grandchildren. For them to see parents genuinely respecting and honoring those who have labored in Christ before them. Our church is entirely dependent upon Christ for our purity and our unity, or to put it another way, for our holiness and our togetherness. And when holiness and togetherness converge, there is life in the church gathering. There is life in the way that we love one another and fellowship with one another and greet one another and enjoy Christ together. It means that we, we set apart time to gather together for worship, we set apart our time, our talent, our treasure solely for the purposes of Christ. And it reveals to the world that they're united. They're united to God and to one another. If we want to grow as a church in the deepest, most biblical sense, we must be pure in our devotion to Christ, removing impurity, repenting of sin, trusting in Him, and united to one another, even the ones that don't look or talk or, or even communicate the way that we communicate. So how does the church ensure that it continues to grow in purity and holiness? Well, that's the, the second point here. Jesus uses the agricultural metaphor in John chapter 15. You remember the, the Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The father is the gardener or the vine dresser. Apart from me, apart from the vine, you can do nothing. Then in verse 6, Jesus says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And then the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and burned. It's a pretty tough word for Jesus. But he's committed to his vine. He's committed to his branches. And if a branch isn't connected to the vine, if it's not life-giving and growing, then it's cut off and thrown into the fire. It must be pruned. 
by Jesus himself. The process that the church takes to ensure that the branches on the vine are, are fruitful is a process called church discipline. Church discipline internally is the safeguard of the purity and the unity of the church, and it just simply holds its members, those who are part of the body of Christ, it holds their members accountable to the grace of Christ. Does it mean that the church is perfect? No. But it means when our imperfections arise to the top, we repent of them and turn and seek God's grace. It safeguards the purity and the unity of the church, holding the church accountable to the gospel of Jesus. Greg Allison is a theologian that I admire and respect. I've used his material for much of the source of the source material for this series, and he defines church discipline this way. It's a propoleptic or anticipatory and declarative sign of the divine eschatological judgment meted out by Jesus Christ through the church against its, sin, against its sinful members and sinful situations. Summarize that. It's the official pronouncement of the body of Christ that says, we love you enough to declare that we, we can no longer affirm that you are a follower of Jesus. We, we can't affirm your profession of faith any longer based upon the overflow of your life and, and how you are responding to the gospel. As a church, as Sierra Bible Church, we did not make this up. This is what Jesus has instructed for his church to do, to preserve unity and, and purity in the church. Jesus says this in Matthew uh, chapter, 15, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. He says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, isn't that nice? First thing, just talk about it. Go to the person and say, hey, you offended me in this way. Let's talk. Would you please repent of that and I'll forgive you? If he listens to you, end of verse 15, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. There's purity and unity restored. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now it's escalated to the point where we need to bring other people in to call the balls and the strikes of this situation. The three are coming as uh, not siding with one, one person or the other person. They're just there as witnesses. Let me hear your side of the story. Let me hear your side of the story. Let's see what happens. The witnesses then hear all the evidence, say, yeah, this was a sin, and this person needs to repent, and they, they need to be restored to fellowship to one another and restored to fellowship in the church. Verse 17, if he refuses even to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then there's a gathering in which the leaders of the church they say, to the, say to the church, this happened, this person is not repenting of their sin. They are continue to, continuing to walk, refusing to receive the grace of Jesus Christ into their life. Verse 17, and if he refuses even to listen to the church, so the church is then called to bring this person back into fellowship. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You're, you're, we can't affirm your faith, your profession of faith because of the way that you are living, what you are professing, what you're teaching, with some sin that's happening in your life that you're refusing to come under the lordship of Christ. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you start this process and the person repents and, 
and they seek God's forgiveness, the church is right there to say, you're forgiven. Walk in the fullness of the grace of God. And, and that's the, uh, what, have, what has already happened in heaven when a person repents. But if the person stubbornly continues in their sin, heaven, heaven says this person is bound in their sin and heading towards judgment. And the church says, yeah, this is the direction that this person is heading. Verse 19 has nothing to do with two people meeting in a bar for worship. It has everything to do with church discipline. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by their Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Meaning Jesus is there with his church to help walk them through this process, this very difficult and painful process of church discipline, so that the purity and integrity and unity of his church can be maintained. The purpose of church discipline is not to kick people out of the church. It's to restore a person to Christ, restore fellowship into the church, to keep them in right fellowship with God, and, and essentially to keep the fellowship of the believers tight with one another. I was going to say this at the end, but I'll say it right now. One of the most difficult parts about church discipline and actually walking through it is that most of our relationships with one another are so superficial that we wouldn't even know where to call somebody out. They're so lacking spiritual substance and meaning. We're so, uh, we're, we're so unwilling to confess our sin and, and we're so unwilling to get involved into people's lives that most churches don't do church discipline because they don't have deep and meaningful relationships with other people in the church. If that's the process, this is the, the, the priority of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 5 verses uh, 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul enters into the church, uh, the situation in the church in Corinth, and um, he essentially rebukes the church for lacking to follow through on the process that Jesus has given to the church. And he says this in chapter 5. Verses 1 through 13. It's actually reported to you that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man is sleeping with his stepmom, and you're celebrating it. The world doesn't even celebrate it, but you guys are celebrating it. Verse 2. Verse two and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the one who's been doing these things be removed from among you. Follow through on the church discipline process. Verse 3, For though I am absent from the body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of, the, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to the Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Like, treat him like a tax collector and, and a sinner so that Satan might have his way with him so that, verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Potentially, he will come to the end of himself like the prodigal son and be restored back to the father. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's a great name for a church. 
right there. New Lump Church. If we ever plant a church, I think that's what it needs to be named. New Lump Church. I got, I digress. The leaven, the new lump, as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not as the old leaven, the leaven of evil and malice, but of unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter to not associate with sexually immoral, sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world. You couldn't even go to your job if you had to not associate with sexually immoral people of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolatries. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. And God hasn't called you out of the world. You're in the world. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, someone who's in the, in the, in the church gathering who says, I'm fully committed to Christ and I am a member of the family of God, who bears the name of the brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. If they're reveling in their sin and the things that Christ died for and they're, they're going to gather other people to participate in the same things and it's incumbent upon the church for the purity and the integrity, for the unity and the purity of the church to discipline such members of the church. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? The outside world is going to do what they do. Is it not for those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are on the outside, purge the evil person from among you. The Apostle Paul is saying that the integrity of the witness of the church to the world is at stake, whether or not we carry forward with church discipline. If church discipline is not carried out, the church becomes just a breeding ground for sin. If the church fails to properly administer church discipline, it, it ceases to be a church. The great Protestant Reformation had at, well, depending upon which theologian you listen to, uh, three marks of the church, the proper preaching of the gospel, one mark of the church, second mark of the church, the administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And third is the exercise of church discipline. Other reformers only had two because they assumed church discipline into the proper administration of the sacraments, but essentially said, if you don't practice church discipline, you're not a church. Church discipline is the way that the doctor tells us that we're unhealthy. It's the way that the, the doctor says, you have an issue that you need to treat, and if you don't treat it, it's going to kill you. Or it's going to get much, much worse. And if the church fails to discipline its members according to scriptural treatment of the issue, the, the church won't grow it might grow outwardly. It might gather other people who sin in the same way that they do. But it won't grow in the way that God desires for her to grow in purity and unity. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter if we have great speakers or a cool band or great programs for the kids or for the community. If we fail to follow through with church discipline, we cannot call ourselves a church of Jesus Christ. And there are so many reasons why we wouldn't follow through with church discipline. I'll give you four that came to mind. One, it's very painful. It is extremely excruciating. I've walked through this process fully in, uh, a few times. Every single case, it hurts very deeply. 
there is an emotional and spiritual toll that it takes upon the church that simply most churches say, well, it's just, it's just too hard and too painful. We're not going to do it. Other reasons why churches don't do it is like, it's very countercultural. The prevailing spirit of the age in our day is that any member has a right to be a member of any institution for whatever reason they desire. And for a church to discipline its members to an outside world can appear to be backward. It's countercultural. Thirdly, is just church hurt. Many churches that are strong in church discipline are very poor because they do it in such a way that is exercise, that is abusing their spiritual authority and propping up a, a sinful religious system that abuses its members and uses church discipline as the lever for change. Some people have a resistance to church discipline because they've had a bad experience as it's been administered improperly, unwisely, or sinfully, and it's damaged a lot of people. So they would say, if, if a church does church discipline, no thank you, I'm out. I've seen that happen. It's damaged too many people. And lastly, it, it just takes hard work and to focus on the glory of Jesus and not oneself. So many churches don't practice church discipline because they're just simply lazy, apathetic, don't care. They're focused on other things like outward growth in numbers and growth in budgets, but not concerned about the purity and the unity of their church. Those are four very simple reasons why we're like, nope, we're not going to touch that. I don't care if Jesus told us to. I don't care if this is a mark of the church. It's nope. Not getting anywhere near that. But here are the reasons why we should conduct church discipline. Holiness and unity are worth it. Brothers and sisters, when you taste of the goodness of God, when you taste of the forgiveness of sin, when you have a brother or sister who knows you so deeply, loves you so unconditionally that they are willing to confront you and say things to you that you know are true, but you don't want to hear about yourself and lovingly invite you to repent. You won't settle for friendships that are superficial anymore. Holiness and unity are worth it. Once you taste even a, a, a glimpse of it, you're hooked for life. Secondly, it is a witness to the world. We don't live by the standards of the world. And if we truly cared about church discipline, the world would see that the church cares about grievous sins in a much more redemptive way than the world. The world will just cancel you if you mess up. You say something wrong, you do something outside of the bounds, you are just canceled, no chance of redemption. The entire process is, yeah, you messed up, but we want you to remain a brother. We want you to remain a part of our family. And when it's done properly, it protects the weak and the oppressed. 
Because even the senior leader of an institution is under the, the authority of Jesus and can be called out and be put into the process of church discipline. You're abusing the sheep. The weak and the oppressed would be protected and the, the arrogant wouldn't be able to get, with, get away with sinful abuse and oppression within the church if the church truly conducted church discipline the way that Jesus prescribes. Thirdly, properly administering church discipline, it can be done. Jesus would not command us to do something that is impossible for us to carry out by the power of his spirit. Christ empowers his church with, this, with the spirit to faithfully carry out his word. Even if it was done poorly in the past, God is faithful to assist a humble church that is seeking to be honored, to, to bring glory to Jesus, to remain pure in his eyes and united in the eyes of the world. And lastly, Jesus just commands it. The reason why we should do it, Jesus commands us to do it. There are many commands that are hard. Die to yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you come and follow me. Yeah, there, there's a lot of commands that Jesus gives that are impossible to do without him and without his spirit. But he commands us to do even that which is hard. And if we're focused on him and his glory, his spirit is right there to make it possible for us. Now, some of us, I know that not all of us are believers in this gathering, and we want to be a gathering that's welcoming to unbelievers and those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus and so for those of you who are new to this whole church experience and I just downloaded a purity, unity, and church discipline message on you and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Why in the world would I want to begin following him? You've already tasted some of it. You've already tasted a reason why and you know it deep in your soul if you're honest with yourself because Christ loves you enough to die for you to redeem you from whatever you're giving your life to right now that you know in, the, in your heart of hearts is, is a slave master that just continues to demand more and more of you and gives less and less in return. And he loves you enough to die for you and to bring you into a gathering of other believers in him who will also love you enough to sacrifice themselves for you even when it's costly and they have to tell you difficult things. He has more than enough grace for every single person in this room. He has more than enough forgiveness for everything that you have ever done. And church discipline is just simply the process of bringing those things to light so that we can revel in the gospel and the forgiveness that he's given to his children through repentance and faith. So why would you enlist? Why would you join? Why would you put your faith in Christ? Because you'd be joined together with us, spiritually stumbling people, and where you can find a home, a spiritual home of people who will love you and care for you the way that Christ has cared for us. And it's our commitment, not just from the pastors and shepherds, but from you to one another, it's our commitment to love one another enough to ensure that we all keep growing in the most important areas of purity and unity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.
I just sense the gravity of this word and I sense the gravity of just your desire for the church, for your people to walk in, in purity and unity and the difficulty that it is to maintain that, to grow in that. But God, I, I pray that you would do a deep work inside of our hearts. Pray that you would bring to surface the, the areas of our lives that are impure and that we would be focused on repentance, turning away from those things. That we would revel in your grace even now before it gets into the process of working it out through the whole church. So God, I pray that you would do whatever it takes inside of us to bond us together to one another, not for the sake of just having warm and fuzzy feelings, but for the sake of true unity underneath the gospel that glorifies you in, in all that we do attempt to do. And God, as we talk through more things about your church regarding outreach and mission and vision and values and all of those things, God, may we never lose sight that what you value most in us is our purity and our unity. May you do whatever it takes inside of us to breathe that, breed that within us. God, we love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.